Ecclesiastes and the second chapter this morning. And while you're turning there, let me put in a shameless plug for our evening service. Uh, We do have an evening service. It's 6 o'clock. It's not the same as this service. It's entirely different. Uh, We've been in a study on Sunday evenings, a series I've entitled Humanity uh, from Creation to Restoration. And uh, we've been looking at the process uh, of God restoring His image in His fallen image bearers. And so tonight, uh, we're going to look at um, a part of that process that is often confusing to Christian people. Um, I, I want to be like Christ. I want to grow in grace. Why do I feel like there is a traitor inside of me? And uh, we're going to address that tonight. And uh, so I hope you'll come back. And I think it would really help you in your Christian walk, maybe, and uh, maybe give you some perspective on uh, what God is doing uh, in our lives as believers. But we're in Ecclesiastes uh, chapter 2. And this is our continuing study in this book. And I'd like to read our text for you this morning before we look at it in detail. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, notice with me please verse 1. Solomon writes, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses, planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure. For my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil that I had expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind. And there was nothing to be gained 
under the sun. Shall we pray? Lord, we come to you with open Bibles and open hearts. Thank you that the Word of God is like a sword that opens our innermost being. It speaks to our condition. It shows us who we really are. And by your grace, it shows us what you would have us to become. And so this morning, as we put our minds upon your word, I ask that you would keep us from just being entertained or simply informed. But Lord, would you change us? Change our perspective. Change the way that we will view our world tomorrow. And help us to know that at your right hand, there are pleasures forevermore. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You recognize these words? We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. That they are endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. That among these are life, liberty, and, do you know the rest? The pursuit of of happiness. These words, of course, come from a very popular document. It is the Declaration of Independence. You can see them somewhat highlighted in just a couple of sentences into that document that our founding fathers, when they declared their independence from Britain, this was part of their declaration that we have a right, a fundamental God-given right to pursue happiness. Now, to be fair, I believe that our founding fathers meant something very different than we do in our day by that statement. However, it is true that the pursuit of happiness has been in the heart of mankind from the very beginning. But that pursuit since the time of Adam and Eve in their expulsion from the Garden of Eden has proved elusive to many. Yet in our day, there is a recognition of this fundamental desire within every human heart to pursue their own highest good and their own happiness that there are many suitors in our culture today that will claim to provide that for which you're looking. And these suitors come at us in the form of advertisement in the 21st century. You long to be happy. And to really be happy, you need to drink diet Because you may not have realized this, but this is fundamentally what makes you happy. And we happen to have that to provide for you. 
Advertisers in our culture spend millions of dollars on creating a need within you that their product can supply. That need is your happiness, and their product will do that for you. That is why just recently, at the most recent Super Bowl, they spent as much as $7 million for a 30-second commercial to let you know that they'll provide your happiness. $400 million will be spent in advertising in the U.S. alone this year. And countless people believe what the advertisers are telling them. If I just get that car, I'll finally be happy. If I just have that vacation, I'll finally grasp that elusive chase after satisfaction. If I could simply get that home, if I could simply look that way, I'll be happy. As I said, this is an age-old pursuit. In fact, in the book of Ecclesiastes, the writer Solomon himself is asking this very question. Where can I find happiness, ultimate happiness or satisfaction? Does it exist under heaven? How can my heart be satisfied? And so Solomon, in writing this book of Ecclesiastes and reflecting back on his life, he, as it were, takes us by the hand and walks us down several avenues. Let's try this avenue to be happy. And let's try this avenue. And in the end, we find through his investigation of life that they all are at dead-end streets. Last week, we walked with Solomon down the dead end of human wisdom. The end of chapter 1 talks about his putting all of his eggs in this basket of human wisdom. And if I can just learn enough and know enough and explore enough, I finally will be happy. Only to find out that the road of human wisdom was a dead end. Happiness eluded him there. And since wisdom doesn't give the answer, when we come to chapter 2, he tries a less intellectual kind of approach. And having found no satisfaction in the academy through learning, he says, well, let's turn now to the theater and the bar and material things. Let's try that avenue and see if we'll find satisfaction there. I like what Matthew Henry, the ancient commentator, said on this passage when he writes, Here he, being Solomon, takes a great step downward from the noble pleasures of the intellect to the brutal ones of sense. Yet if he resolves to make a thorough test, he must knock at this door because here a great part of mankind imagines that they will find happiness. And so Solomon makes this test as he says in verse 1, I said in my heart, let me test you with this, with pleasure. Let's walk down this road and see what will take place. And as we discovered at the end of chapter 1, where Solomon gives us his credentials regarding his authority to comment on wisdom, he was the wisest man who lived. 
When we come to chapter 2, he says, I have authority to comment on the pursuit of pleasure as well, because what he will describe for us are attainments and pleasures beyond any of our grasp. These are royal pleasures. And he says, if you think you could have more, you can't. I've tried it all and done it all. I've made an exhaustive test. And so this morning I want us to focus our attention on the first 11 verses of Ecclesiastes chapter 2 and look at this pursuit of happiness. Does he find fulfillment in these things? What are his conclusions? Ultimately, what I want you to understand this morning is this. What Solomon will teach us is that we are to enjoy God's good gifts, but know that nothing under the sun ultimately satisfies. Right up front, we need to make clear that he's not saying there's no pleasure in this world. What he's asking is, do the pleasures of this world ultimately satisfy? And what should my pursuit of those things be? And so let's note Solomon's pursuits as he has chronicled them here for us. We're going to note them in in two ways. The first thing we're going to understand is that he pursued happiness through self-indulgent pleasure. He says this in the first three verses. He says very plainly, this word pleasure comes up in verse 1, it comes up again in verse 2, and and he's talking about this kind of self-indulgent kind of life. He says in verse 1, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself. He proposes a test to see if his own pleasure provides an adequate justification for human existence, if it will ultimately satisfy And again, he's acknowledging that there is pleasure. There is pleasure in this world under the sun. But his question is, are those ultimate pleasures? Do they really bring satisfaction? What Solomon is doing is he is trying out this particular worldview or lifestyle. It is a worldview of hedonism. What is hedonism? It is just that. It is choosing to make my own personal happiness the highest ideal. Therefore, I will live for that which makes me personally happy. And in the end, if I get enough of that and I'm constantly happy, I will be satisfied. This is what many people live for today, and it's a temptation for all of us to make ourselves the center of the world and live solely for my own pleasure because that's the only way I'll truly be filled up and satisfied. And there are two things that Solomon notes that he tried with this experiment of hedonism. The first of those is in verse 2. He says he tries laughter, and the second is verse 3. He says he tries wine. Now, why these two things? Well, notice in verse 2, he says, I said of laughter, it is mad, and of pleasure, what use is it? By the way, at the end of verse 1, and here also we find in verse 2, that that Solomon kind of hints at the results of the test in the beginning, right? 
He says, I said of laughter, and then this was my conclusion, it's, it's madness, and pleasure isn't really useful. But what he's saying is, but this was my pursuit. I tried laughter. Well, what is laughter? Laughter, really, Solomon means, is, is a lighthearted approach to life. It's approaching life by distraction. So instead of thinking deep about the hard things of life and the difficult issues of life, what I tried was to constantly keep myself entertained, constantly amused, laughing and lighthearted. Don't take life so seriously. This was his experiment. Would this ultimately be satisfying and really resolve all the issues that he was considering, even in his own mind? Well, is that really the key to happiness and satisfaction, is to be constantly amused and entertained? If it were, no doubt people living in the 21st century would be the most satisfied and content people who've ever lived. Because there are more ways to be entertained and distracted today than there have ever been. People can constantly fill their minds through devices they carry around with them and now things you can actually wear on your eyes and constantly be distracted and filled with entertainment so much you can't possibly consume it all in a day. It comes being generated so quickly. But beloved, comedy and entertainment and constant amusement can't redeem us. It can distract us. It can take your mind for a while off the difficulties of life and the hardness of life, but in the end, ultimately, it can't redeem you. It doesn't ultimately satisfy. Again, I love what Matthew Henry said about this. Henry said, great laughter commonly ends in a sigh. Think about it. (laughs) Ha, ha, ha. Ah. I think that's so picturesque because that's exactly what Solomon is saying. You can go to the theater and amuse yourself and get your mind off things for a moment, but ultimately it's going to come crashing down. It doesn't satisfy. And yet how often have we even as the Lord's people thought, if only I could live at Disneyland, my life would be perfect. It's not true. Solomon says, I tried entertainment, I tried laughter, I tried these distractions, these amusements to to try to satisfy, but they didn't. And then secondly, look what he says in verse 3. I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly. He says, okay, I went from the theater to the bar. 
and said, let's try that and see what's there for me. And to be fair, we need to understand that when we read the word wine here in the book of Ecclesiastes, it is not the same as we would experience today. This was thousands of years before the distillation process. He's not talking about, I went and had a scotch or, or vodka, uh, something really hard. Uh, what, what he's saying is, I went to partake of wine that commonly was mixed with water in this age to dilute its potency. I think Solomon is saying, maybe I didn't dilute it as much, and so I I drank the wine to become maybe a little bit inebriated, but I didn't lose my senses. And here's what he means by that. He says, I didn't give myself to total dissipation to indulge in this, so I became a drunk. That's why he says, my mind was still with wisdom. But he says, but I still looked for the effects of the alcohol to kind of calm my nerves, to to steal my agitation. Just this kind of enjoyment to try to take my mind off of things. We could say in our modern age that he turned to substances to try to numb the pain of his empty, joyless life. Is this not true of people today in our society, that this is often the answer? Even people who themselves would say they are not drunkards, but they look for wine or alcohol or some other substance just to try to handle their anxiety and the pressures of life. When you listen to people talk today, certainly coworkers and and people around you in the neighborhood, they say things like, I just can't wait till Friday comes to go to the bar and hang out with my friends because it's there I finally find some relief. And Solomon says, okay, what if you could live there 24-7? Is that really the relief? Is that really satisfaction? In our world, as it continues to spin out of control in our culture as it advances itself further and further toward leaving God out of the picture. It looks more and more for these kinds of things to numb the pain. Just this week, there's, there's a bill in, in our state to try and legalize marijuana. It's happened in many other states we know, and people say, people are doing it anyway. What's the use? My question is, why are they doing it? It's, it's to provide a distraction. It's to numb the pain of life. It's to not have to deal with the hard questions of life. And so this is Solomon's pursuit. He's pursuing happiness through self-indulgent pleasure. And he says, I did everything I could, and I went down this avenue, and it's a dead end. You can't be entertained enough You can't drink enough, you can't do enough to ultimately be satisfied. So he says, I tried something else. I tried to find happiness through acquiring possessions. Look at verse 4. He said, so next, I, I made great works. 
I built houses, planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forests of growing trees. And he's going to talk about all the things he had. And later on, he's going to talk about all the things that he had acquired. And in the end, what Solomon is saying here is, here's the next pursuit I tried. I tried hedonism. That didn't work. Now I'm going to try materialism. Maybe I can acquire enough things and get enough stuff to fill this hole in my heart. And so in verses 4 through 6, he talks about these great works of building houses and planting these vineyards and having gardens. If you want to know what these were like, you can read in 1 Kings chapter 7, and it describes for us the, the building of Solomon's temple and how he engaged in that and what that looked like. We're told that he had gardens. He, what's interesting to me is when you read through this list, notice the plurals. I made myself gardens and parks, planted in them fruit trees. I made pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I had houses, plural, and vineyards. It's, it's not like I just had this one little set. It's like I had multiple of these. And I tried all of these things. What Solomon was making for himself was a personal garden of Eden. As I read through this this week, my my mind went to uh, one of the most beautiful places I've ever been, and you may recognize it. Do you know what that is? That is a place called the Biltmore. It's in Asheville, North Carolina, built by the Vanderbilt uh, of fame. Uh, I actually proposed to my wife at that place uh, for um, 27 years ago. Beautiful. And, and I, it was at one time, I didn't check it this week, but it is the largest private residence in America. I know it was at one time, it, I, maybe it still is. Massive place. But what's really amazing about the Biltmore is this. There are these beautiful gardens around it. And they are just immaculate. And if you go in the right time, the color is just popping, and it's stunning. And you can actually, they have a tour, and you can pay to see it. And you can pay just to see the garden, which is worth it. If you don't ever go in the house, you just go in the garden, and that's worth the price. Beautiful, magnificent place. And I I thought of that, and I thought, Solomon is saying, I had something like that. And I acquired all of that and got that together. And what Solomon was doing, I think, in his own heart was saying, I was trying to get back to the Garden of Eden. In fact, when you read Ecclesiastes 2, the language, the vocabulary he uses is reminiscent of Genesis 2. I I made, I planted, I watered. And it's reminiscent of God building this beautiful dwelling for Adam and Eve where he makes and plants and waters this beautiful garden. And it's almost as if in his heart Solomon is saying, I did everything I could to get back to Eden and it didn't work. Because do you know, beloved, what makes Eden, Eden? God was there. And Solomon says, I did everything I could to recreate that and get back there, but I never found satisfaction. Why? 
because God's not there. This was under the sun. I left him out of the picture. So he said, I went on this, this building project spree, and, and I had all of these things and thought, certainly these things were going to make me happy. He engaged in these kinds of engineering projects. Look at verse 6. I made myself pools from which to water the forests of growing trees. These plants need water, and so I I can see him sitting down, pouring over plans, as it were. This is an engineering uh, project. I'm going to create these aqueducts to water these beautiful gardens. And and there is a sense of satisfaction in that, is there not? Building your own house and and putting hard work into it and coming to the end of it. And there's a certain pleasure in that, but is it ultimately satisfying so he said this is what I did I I tried to find it here and then look at what he says in verse 7 he says I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house also had great possessions of herds and flocks more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem what's he speaking of here He's speaking of employees, right? I I had people working for me in my house. And these were people that managed all of this that was going on, all of these gardens and various things. And a measure of someone's wealth in that day would be measured in, in the people that they have under them and serving them, how many they employ, and also in their, their livestock and their cattle and, and their fields and that kind of thing. And this would have been the valuation of their bottom line. This, this would have been their net worth. And it's not so much different today where you might ask someone who owns a business and you own a business and you say, oh, how many employees do you have? How many are working for you? That gives you an estimation, perhaps, of the value of their business. But notice just the immense wealth that Solomon had. He's he's on the pursuit of materialism, and I put it on the screen for you. In 1 Kings chapter 4, here's what we're told about how much Solomon had. We're told that Solomon's provision for one day, all right? So this is to take care of all of these people in his household. For one day, this is what it took to provide for them. It was 30 cores of fine flour. You say, what's a core of fine flour? I didn't know either, right? So I looked it up. Basically, it amounts to about 1,600 gallons of flour. One day. He says, and then I had 60 cores of meal. That's, that's grain. How much is that? Obviously, you double that. It's about 3,200 gallons of, of meal, grain mixed together to be able to provide for these people. He said, and there were, 20, uh, there were 10 fat oxen. Not just oxen, fat oxen, the best. And then he says there were 20 pasture-fed cattle. What's that? You know all about that, right? That's why you go to Trader Joe's. It's the grass-fed beef. That's the good beef. And he says, every single day, 20 of them were on my table. Besides 100 sheep, deer, gazelles, roebucks, fat and fowl. What the Bible is just reinforcing what Solomon has said is that he was, we would say, filthy rich. Had it all. Didn't lack anything. 
This was his pursuit of materialism. Now, do you think that would satisfy you? Don't we tend to look at people like that, wealthy people, and we say, well, if I had that, it would be different. I mean, if I could just get to that level, I would be satisfied. They just don't know how to satisfy themselves. I could be. Well, the problem is, is that you're thinking that you need to get to that level to actually be satisfied. He goes on. Look at verse 8. I also gathered for myself silver and gold, the treasure of kings and provinces. What he's saying is, I had all the money you could imagine. In fact, we're told in the book of Kings that, that silver was so prominent in the days of Solomon, it was worthless. That's how much he had. Today we would say, I had the largest IRA. My 401k was maxed. I could live off the interest for the rest of my life. Solomon says, I had that. Verse 80 continues. I got singers, both men and women. He's kind of back to this idea of entertainment, right? Uh, Solomon didn't have this in this day, but, but he's not saying, I got, I got Spotify or Apple Music and I play these recordings. No, he's saying, when I wanted entertainment, I said, bring the singers. And they came in, and here's the live choir. He said, I had that. And in the end, he says, at the end of verse 8, and I had many concubines, the delight of the sons of man. What Solomon is indicating by that is I had sexual pleasure. He had 700 wives, 300 concubines, we're told. That was his harem. And Solomon said, anytime, that was his test of pleasure. This pursuit of happiness through acquiring possessions, these material things, these, these pleasurable things. Solomon said, I had it all, I tried it all. And so what is his conclusion? Notice with me, finally, his elusive pursuit of happiness. Look at what he says in verse 9. He says, So I became great, and I surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. Whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. His pursuit was exhaustive. I kept my heart from no pleasure. For my heart found pleasure in all my toil... And this was my reward for all my toil. What's he saying here? Solomon is giving a rationalization. And what he's saying is this. I tried all of this. I worked hard to acquire all of this. And what he's saying is, don't be fooled. There was a measure of pleasure in this toil. He's not saying, I hated every minute of it. He's saying, I worked hard for it. And there was a sense of pleasure in all of this toil. In fact, in the end of verse 9, when he says, this was my reward, what he's saying is, and basically, I was entitled to it. I worked hard for this, and I was entitled to it. But his ultimate conclusion is found in verse 11. 
because here's his reflection on all of that. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity, striving after wind. There was nothing to be gained in all of this. The word considered here that Solomon uses in verse 11 is a word that means to look in the eye. He says, when I saw all of these material pleasures, it's like I turned around and I looked at myself in the eye and said, what really does all of this mean? He says, in the end, it was like chasing wind again. None of it ultimately satisfied. He had worked hard to earn the right to enjoy all of these things, but the payoff didn't match the effort. It didn't satisfy. Several years ago, Steve Jobs, the founder, one of the founders of Apple Computers, uh, household name, Apple. Jobs uh, was a billionaire, uh, but he died at the age of 56. And some of his last recorded thoughts and reflections on his life are these. He said, I reached the pinnacle of success in the business world. In others' eyes, my life is the epitome of success. However, aside from work, I have little joy. In the end, my wealth is only a fact of life that I am accustomed to. At this moment, Lying on my bed and recalling my life, I realize that all the recognition and wealth that I took so much pride in have paled and become meaningless in the face of my death. He said, as we grow older and hopefully wiser, we realize that a $30,000 or a $30 watch both tell the same time. You will realize that your true inner happiness does not come from the material things of this world. There's a modern day Solomon giving us the same answer to the pursuit. And because this is true, that people for millennia have sought satisfaction in things under the sun to fill up this hole in their heart, as it were, with the things that they can see and the pleasures that this world has to offer. Because that has always been the case. A very thoughtful man had something profound to say about this. His name is C.S. Lewis. And Lewis wrote in his book, Mere Christianity, he said, If I find in myself desires which nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. If I tried all of this and none of this ultimately brought me to satisfaction, the thinking person says, I must be made for something else. There must be more beyond the sun. And this is certainly true. This is the conclusion that Solomon actually is driving us toward in this essay that he leaves us at the end of his life. 
He takes us down these dead-end streets to ultimately bring us back to a crossroad. That life is more than just what's under the sun. Life in this world is a gift from God. And these are God's good gifts. There are pleasures in these things under the right practice of them in the fear of God. And it's intended by God that way. But they're not ultimate things. Life is gift from God, not gain. We don't seek our ultimate gain in these things. And Solomon would have done well at this point to pause and think very carefully about what his father had said. His father, David, wrote this in Psalm 16. Speaking of God, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. And David is not saying all the pleasures are in heaven in those streets of gold and those things. What David is saying is in your presence is pleasure forevermore. I was made for you. And as Augustine said, my heart is restless until it rests in you. Now let me close with this thought. As human beings, we passionately pursue our own happiness and pleasure. And I think sometimes we're embarrassed by that. And we think, well, I just, I just shouldn't be searching for my own happiness because I'm so selfish. And what I need to do is become an ascetic. And what God wants from me is just to be miserable all the time. Because if I'm miserable all the time, then certainly I'm pleasing God. And that is not the message of Psalm 16. What David says is the problem is not that you're pursuing pleasure. The problem is you pursue it in the wrong place. And what you need is not to suppress that want of pleasure and happiness in your life, but what you need to do is direct it to the only source where you'll find it. And that is only in your creator, in God himself. We pursue ultimate pleasure and ultimate satisfaction in things that were never intended to give that. But to pursue God and knowing him in the fear of him is to pursue ultimate pleasure. It's to pursue ultimate satisfaction. And as the catechism teaches us, we glorify God. And really it's by enjoying him forever. Think about it. You value most what you think will give you the most pleasure. You place the highest values on those things that will really satisfy you. 
God says, where am I in your valuation? Is God of ultimate value to you? Not because of what he does for you, but simply because of who he is. He's your creator. I think this was demonstrated very well by Ted Tripp. He recounts a time in 1992 when, when he spent six weeks in Africa. He was teaching over there, and he was separated from his wife for that time, those six weeks of teaching. And he says when he, when he came back to Margie, his wife, uh, they came to the airport, and she saw him and ran to him, and, and they embraced each other. And he said somebody snapped a picture of that, and he put it on his desk for a long time to remind him of something. He said what I saw in that picture was Margie's absolute pleasure to be in my presence and that's what she valued and he said how do you suppose it would have been if she had come running to me after those six weeks of separation and I had rebuffed her and said what's what's your problem you're so selfish you want your own pleasure what's wrong with you all you think about is, is how this makes you feel He said, that would have been a horrific thing. And he said, with God, it's the same way. When you're seeking your ultimate pleasure in him and running to him to find that satisfaction, he doesn't rebuff you and say, what's your problem? You're so self-focused. No, what he says is, with me, there's fullness of joy. So come to me. And Jesus says, come to me. You'll find water for your thirst. I've come that you would have life and abundantly. Come to me. Make me your highest value. You'll find satisfaction. Now, have you ever come to the Lord Jesus Christ like that? What are you looking for to satisfy you? Have you found it? You were made for your creator. He has provided a way for you to come to him through the Lord Jesus Christ. If you will but acknowledge your brokenness and call out to him to save you, you would be saved and satisfied. Have you? Let's pray together.